There's many reasons why I feel the, an SCDI platform is the right place to have tonight's discussion. Uh, I don't need to remind you that over the years the Scottish Council for Development Industries played a vital role in informing both the economic and the constitutional debate in Scotland. Um, SCDI has a proud history of making sure, uh, none more so than during the debate that ran up to the re-establishment of the Parliament in 1999, that the debate on Scotland's constitutional future maintained a core focus on economic issues. Um, I have personally always been struck by the way in which SCDI has approached discussions around the constitution and the economy, looking first at the kind of economy and society that individuals wanted for Scotland, then considering whether we have the constitutional powers to deliver that approach. And I think as a, as a, as a, a guidance to how I think this debate can best be structured, I think that approach of looking at the kind of society and economy we want and then deciding what constitutional powers is appropriate um, will help a number of individuals to resolve uh, their approach to this debate. That approach has been respectful of the diversity of opinion and views in Scotland, but at all times it has been critical and equally challenging to all sides of the debate. Uh, there have been numerous SCDI contributions over the years, and in preparing for tonight I look back at one of those, um, which was a, a report commissioned by SCDI in 2007 on the fiscal debate, and it was a report prepared by Professors Charlie Jeffrey and Drew Scott from the University of Edinburgh. And... In that re uh, report, I was struck by the recommendation that to better uh, help inform the economic and constitutional debate in Scotland, we should set up an independent group of Scottish, UK and international experts to help us do so. So I'm just about to now give the SCDI full credit for informing government initiatives uh, that resulted in us establishing the Independent Fiscal Commission, which the government established back in March 2012, and who published their first report on a macroeconomic framework early last month. But before I move on to the substance of my remarks uh, this evening, it's worth reflecting about where we've come from over the past year. It's a welcome development for us all that the debate is now moving on to the substance and away from the process of the referendum itself. Over the last uh, six months, we've put in place the Edinburgh Agreement, which has paved the way for a referendum in autumn 2014, and ensures that whatever the outcome, both governments will work in the interests of the people of these islands. We've agreed the wording of the referendum question, should Scotland be an independent country? We've set out our proposals for the transition for, from a yes vote to independence and a written constitution. We've introduced legislation to enable all 16 and 17-year-olds to vote in the referendum. And as you've probably heard over the weekend, we plan to confirm the referendum debate to Parliament later on this week. Included in that activity is, of course, the first report from the Fiscal Commission and, additionally, our proposals for establishing a single economic regulator, both of which I'll touch on this evening. This marks the first in a series of papers on our plans for business policy post-independence and it's all part of a substantial process of engagement between now and the publication of the White Paper in the autumn of this year and the referendum in 2014, in which uh, I am very much of the view that SCDI will be full participants. The Fiscal Commission has so far very much focused on the how of independence. We tasked this eminent group with taking a comprehensive view of the Scottish economy and using this to put forward a workable macroeconomic framework for Scotland. 
But I also want to focus uh, tonight on the why of independence, the opportunities that I believe independence will present to the Scottish economy in the years ahead. In approaching this debate, it is vitally important that we consider the opportunities and challenges for both independence and remaining as part of the United Kingdom. And Wednesday's budget puts this in a good context. In my view, the series of choices put in place by the UK government, specifically its damaging approach to economic recovery and welfare reform, highlight perhaps more clearly than ever before the urgent need for Scotland to regain full economic and fiscal sovereignty. So I'll discuss many of those questions in the course of my remarks tonight. To begin with, the Fiscal Commission um, is playing a, a central role in the process of informing the independence debate in Scotland. We set up the Commission to advise on how an independent Scotland could position itself both for the challenges of independence and to be able to best exploit the opportunities economic sovereignty would provide. I was delighted that we were able to draw upon the expertise of globally renowned economists, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist Professor Joe Stiglitz and Professor Jim Merlees, um, Andrew Hughes-Hallett and Francis Ruane to lead the work uh, chaired by Crawford Beveridge. Their contributions are factual and informed um, uh, with the group committed to remaining impartial in the debate on Scotland's constitutional future. Having such an authoritative and open input into the process is, I believe, something of immense benefit. Despite its 220 pages, the group's report is immensely accessible and gets to the heart of the debate on options and proposals for currency arrangements, financial stability and fiscal policy. Um, it's perhaps not a holiday read over the Easter break, but it certainly is worth a look, uh, in my opinion. In the view of the Fiscal Commission, they've provided the basic foundations to enable us to design a new economic framework for Scotland, setting out their views on principles, policies and institutions. Helping to create a framework that is underpinned by economic growth, stability and fairness, and they have built this on the strong economic foundations that we all know that Scotland has. One of the most significant contributions of the paper was to undertake a dispassionate analysis of the Scottish economy and to use this to inform options for the future. The Commission's analysis of the data and recent performance of the Scottish economy and how it compares both with the UK and other countries provides an excellent summary of where the, Scot the Scottish economy currently sits at the moment, its key strengths and most significant challenges. This part of the report alone will serve policymakers and government ministers well for many years to come. In terms of GDP per head, the internationally recognised measure of wealth, relative wealth, Scotland performs strongly. The most recent figures show that even excluding oil and gas output, Scotland currently has the third highest GDP per head in the UK, behind London and the South East, with a rate identical to that in the UK as a whole. When a geographical share of oil and gas output is included, Scotland's GDP per head rises to 118% of the UK figure. And figures published this, uh, just last week by the Scottish Government estimate that including oil, Scotland would be ranked 8th out of the 34 OECD countries in terms of GDP per head. In looking to the future, Scotland has key strengths that will serve her well, particularly in sectors such as food and drink, life sciences and tourism. The report acknowledges that Scotland also has a world-class research base with top-ranking universities and a global reputation for science, engineering and creativity. And despite the recent challenges, 
The financial sector continues to perform well, particularly in areas such as asset management, pensions and insurance. As a location for international investment, Scotland also performs strongly. The latest Ernst & Young Attractiveness Index continues to place Scotland as the top UK destination for foreign direct investment in terms of job creation. Scotland also benefits from mature and well-functioning institutions and the ability to bring key economic decision-makers, both from the public and the private sector, together easily to work in the mutual interest. We have an open trading economy with a highly skilled and flexible labour market, and it's not just the assets of our people that are strong, but we also have strong natural assets. In energy, Scotland is one of the richest nations in Europe. In renewables, it is estimated that we have around 25% of Europe's potential offshore wind and tidal energy, a tenth of Europe's wave power potential, and an estimated 50% of carbon capture and storage reserves. Our oil and gas sector continues to go from strength to strength, with record levels of investment in the North Sea. Projected investment will reach £13 billion in 2013, whilst total investment in companies' plans is worth around £100 billion. The first in a series of analytical bulletins on Scotland's oil and gas industry uh, performance from the Scottish Government that was published just this time last week showed that Scotland is estimated to be the largest producer of hydrocarbons in the EU, accounting in 2010 for nearly two-thirds of EU oil production, with the potential for the industry to generate between £41 and £57 billion pounds in tax revenue between 2012-13 and 2017-18. Oil and Gas UK, the industry body, estimate that up to 24 billion barrels of oil and gas equivalent could still be recovered. These reserves are estimated to have a potential wholesale value of up to £1.5 trillion. Pounds. This implies that by wholesale value, more than half of the oil and gas reserves in the UK continental shelf could still be extracted. There can be no doubt that in the event of a yes vote in 2014, Scotland will be becoming independent from a position of relative economic strength. Having the ability to properly combine the assets of our people with our natural assets in the pursuit of a more prosperous Scotland can only enhance our potential. We are also setting out our case for independence from a position of relative financial strength. According to the official Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland analysis, published uh, again last week, which sets out the actual levels of tax and spending on a comprehensive basis in Scotland, Scotland contributed 9.9% of all UK revenues in 2011-12, but received only 9.3% of total UK public <coughs> expenditure. Overall, these statistics show that Scotland continues to be in a relatively stronger budget position than the UK as a whole, to the value of £824 per person, or £4.4 billion as a country. This proves once again that the facts show that Scotland more than pays her way. As the Fiscal Commission's analysis of Scotland's economy and finance concludes, by international standards, Scotland is a wealthy and productive country. There is no doubt that Scotland has the potential to be a successful independent nation. Now, there has been much discussion on the subject of Scotland's financial strength recently, um, in part uh, because of a year-old cabinet paper with my name on it, which uh, there's nothing quite to whet the appetite than elite cabinet paper. Um, there were two key reactions to that paper's publication. Firstly, 
The reaction of those who read the paper and reflected on the level of work being undertaken in government to ensure that we have answered the questions pe people will naturally have about independence and can demonstrate to people across Scotland how we can better meet the challenges of the future with the powers of a normal nation. And secondly, the reaction of those opposed to independence who sought to portray the picture of where Scotland would have been in 2016 on these old numbers and under the UK's economic strategy as an admission that Scotland's public finances would somehow be weaker than the UK. In contrast, what the, the, what the paper showed was that over the entire period presented in the paper, Scotland remained in a stronger relative position to the UK to the tune of nearly £17 billion between 2010-11 and 2016-17. Moreover, as analysis by the Fiscal Commission showed, if we assume that Scotland was to secure a per capita share of outstanding UK debt, despite having been in a stronger fiscal position whilst that debt was being accumulated, an independent Scotland would still have a lower debt-to-GDP ratio than the United Kingdom. And all of this is before priorities are set under independence, for example on savings on the defence budget and the benefits we could expect to receive from faster growth and economic development from policy being targeted towards Scottish circumstance. As the Fiscal Commission report therefore makes clear, as a nation, our economic fundamentals are sound, but we could and we must be able to do better. While many of our economic characteristics are, 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 are as strong, if not better than the UK as a whole, we lag behind many other countries of a comparable size, both on key economic and social indicators. It is clear that over the long term, Scotland has not completely fulfilled its economic potential. And I believe there are two reasons for this. Firstly, the UK economy has underperformed relative to its peers. In terms of GDP per head, the UK is currently ranked 16th in the OECD, and on wider measures of economic and social progress, such as the UN's uh, Human Development Index, the UK is ranked 28th between the Czech Republic and Greece. Too many of our people live in poverty, part of a UK economic structure and society, which is one of the most unequal in the advanced economy world. Despite growth in recent decades, inequalities have grown rather than fallen, and the gap between the rich and the poor becoming greater. Those inequalities will only rise as a result of the forthcoming welfare reforms impacting on our growth potential. Indeed, research published by the OECD in 2011 has shown that since 1975, income inequality among working-age people increased more quickly in the UK than in any other OECD country. Regional variations within the UK have also widened. Policy decisions have been taken at the UK level with little consideration for the spatial impact across the United Kingdom. Every person struggling with the impact of poverty is a member of our society unable to play their full part in the economic lift of our country. This can only hinder our efforts to become stronger and a more successful nation where all have the opportunity to flourish. The second drag on UK economic growth, and more fundamentally, is that in an increasingly competitive global economy, targeted policies designed to capture the unique strengths and address the relative weaknesses of an economy are all the more important and relevant. Under the current constitutional arrangements, the full range of economic policies cannot be tailored to the specific structure, opportunities and challenges which face our economy, 
This puts Scotland and our economy at a competitive disadvantage. In order to take advantage of these opportunities, it is vital that we have a clear vision and plan for how an independent Scotland could operate. This is where the Fiscal Commission report makes such an important contribution. Their vision for a new framework is underpinned by four key themes that run throughout the report. Credibility, sustainability, stability and autonomy. A credible framework that builds investor and business confidence, one that enables the government to develop sustainable fiscal policies with an economy that is resilient to short-term shocks and enables us to develop our own unique policies. Using these themes, they set out the options and proposals for the three key elements of a macroeconomic framework, currency arrangements, financial stability and fiscal policy. Delivering a robust structure for each of these three elements is an important prerequisite for providing the foundations for prosperity, fairness and economic opportunity. The work of the Commission considers all the options within both the context of the current Scottish and UK dimension and emerging international developments. As the report makes clear, the international context is, is critical and particularly important within the context of areas such as fiscal responsibility and financial regulation. The debate in Scotland often looks inwards and a major contribution of the report has, to, has been to put conversations that we're having in Scotland about the optimal balance of economic power and the de design of institutions in a global context. The Fiscal Commission described their proposition as a workable blend of autonomy and continuity. It is, in their words, a well-engineered model designed to operate from day one of independence. With a yes vote, full economic sovereignty would be restored to the people of Scotland and future Scottish governments would have access to the key levers of growth. There are a number of key findings in the report that consider how and why future governments would use that sovereignty that are worth reflecting upon. Firstly, on the choice of currency. The conclusion of the Commission is that it would be in the clear interests of both Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom for Scotland to retain sterling within a formal monetary union with the UK. On a practical level, as an open economy with the UK as its principal trading partner, accounting for two-thirds of onshore Scottish exports, retaining the pound would maintain the single market for goods and services and promote investment in the same way as the current period. This report also makes clear that this would be in the interests of both countries. And in proposing a currency union, the Fiscal Commission report addresses the arguments of those who claim that a currency union would not work and who cite the recent experiences of the euro area as justification for this point of view. The Fiscal Commission find instead that the important prerequisites of a successful currency union, which do not yet exist in the euro area, are satisfied in the case of Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. For example, productivity levels, a key measure of competitiveness and alignment in Scotland and the UK, are now identical. In contrast, in terms of GDP per hour worked, productivity in Germany was estimated to be around 70% more than in Greece in 2011. The proposition to retain sterling is one with which I and the Scottish Government agree. A sterling union can provide us with price and macroeconomic stability whilst not inhibiting future independent governments from using the full fiscal and economic flexibility that comes with sovereignty to change and adapt to new economic circumstances 
promote growth and create jobs. A successful sterling union with Scotland as a full and equal partner is the best option for all. We know the UK government is interested in the proposal and far from ruling it out now accepts that it is possible. The recent change in the UK government's stance strikes me as the difference between the rhetoric and the reality of this debate. Following a yes vote in the referendum, I firmly believe that the UK government will look to secure a sterling zone that provides a consistent and transparent framework to manage the transition process and ensures that the rest of the UK would also retain an integrated market with key trading partners. One which saw Scotland export over £45 billion in goods and services to the UK in 2011, excluding oil and gas. Secondly, it will come as no surprise to you that as Finance Secretary in the Scottish Government, the recommendations of the Working Group on the Importance of Fiscal Discipline and the role of an independent fiscal commission are something that I'm looking at very carefully indeed. The experience of the last few years highlights the difficulties a country can get into if it lets its finances get out of control. The evidence points to the fact that despite a, f- a set of fiscal rules introduced shortly after 1997, the UK pu- public finances were on a clearly unsustainable path throughout the 1990s and well into the last decade in the run-up to the crisis. The OECD estimate that in 2007 the UK was running the second largest structural budget deficit in the EU despite a decade of continuous economic growth. This meant that the UK was poorly placed to deal with the the consequences of the recession. The creation of an independent fiscal commission to offer insight into the management of public finances is something that could assist in the smooth running and functioning of the sterling area and provide a warning should the government of either country seek to replicate the poor fiscal policies of the past. Operating within parameters of good fiscal behaviour and within a sterling zone of choices that we are only able to make with the full powers of independence. Crucially, a future independent Scotland following that route would have, in the view of the Fiscal Commission, the full flexibility to vary tax and spending decisions to target key opportunities and challenges in Scotland. As a simple illustration of how such a mechanism could work, Using the most recent government expenditure and revenue in Scotland figures, if a fiscal rule was in place to ensure alignment between Scottish and UK borrowing, an independent Scotland in 2011-12 could have chosen to borrow £1.4 billion less, reducing our debt repayments in the long run. We could have invested £1.4 billion in a stabilisation fund, securing the economic benefit of our natural resources for future generations. And importantly, in a time of recession, we could have funded a further £1.4 billion of investment in our economy through capital spending, support for public services or targeted incentives to get the economy growing. An independent Scotland could have made those choices and had enough resources left over to abolish the bedroom tax and still be better off than the rest of the United Kingdom. So there are choices that are implicit in the Act of Independence. Thirdly, and related to the establishment of fiscal rules and an independent commission, I'm attracted to the idea of creating a stabilisation fund. We've argued for the implementation of an oil fund for as long as I can remember. Norway shows just how beneficial this could be. The Norwegian fund was only started in 1996 
And as figures just published show, it is now worth £450 billion. Is undertaking ethical investment in emerging markets and now even owns Regent Street at the same time as providing for future generations of Norwegians and Norwegian pensioners through the, turn, the return on its investments. The Fiscal Commission have suggested that the way to develop such a fund is to set out a forecast for future oil revenues and to save any upside volatility from one year to the next to be used when oil revenues vary. In time, such a fund has the potential to evolve into a truly wealth-generating fund like that of our Norwegian neighbours. This is an attractive proposition and I'm pleased to say that the working group have agreed to do further work around the role that a stabilisation fund could play. Currency, fiscal discipline, opportunity and stability are just part of the working group's first report. There is much to consider and the government will respond fully in the coming months as we work towards publication of the White Paper. As part of that process in the coming weeks, I'll be seeking to engage with stakeholders throughout our economy to help inform our response. Scotland, as I've outlined already, has strong economic foundations. In the work of the Fiscal Commission, we have key recommendations on how to manage that economy, and with a yes vote next year, we will have the opportunity to grow that economy to its full potential. The current constitutional settlement places constraints on the policy opportunities open to the Scottish Government, eh, particularly around boosting long-term competitiveness. In my view, greater responsibility is the key to fully unlocking Scotland's job creation potential and improving the prospects of the people in Scotland. At the heart, therefore, of our case for independence is the argument for greater economic powers for Scotland to be able to grow our economy more quickly and to build a more cohesive, sustainable and inclusive society. With independence... Scotland would have control over new economic levers that can be used to deliver economic growth, boost resilience, achieve greater fairness and opportunity and promote sustainability. The Scottish Government and Scottish Parliament have already proven their capability in the powers we currently hold. Independence will allow us to build upon this platform of trust and competence into areas of responsibility available to other comparable nations. Our progress to date with the implementation of the Scotland Act shows how we can do something different when the opportunities present themselves, with our proposal for a progressive land and buildings transaction tax and an innovative approach to tax management. At the heart of our tax proposals is the principle of efficiency. We have looked to ensure that these principles are not only embedded in the way we design taxes, but are also reflected in the agency we have established to collect our newly devolved taxes in the shape of Revenue Scotland. We've also taken these principles into account when setting out our vision for economic regulation in an independent Scotland. Independence will enable Scotland for the first time to introduce an effective and efficient regulatory framework which matches the needs of the Scottish people and the Scottish economy. This will be just as important as gaining control of other economic levers such as taxation and fiscal measures. Regulation in an independent Scotland can be much simpler, more focused and better tuned to Scotland's specific needs. Instead of operating six distinct regulatory bodies in these areas, as the UK currently does, our proposed combined models of economic and competition regulation will streamline the regulatory landscape to a single, or at the most, two bodies. This approach will provide a regulatory function 
most suited to a country of Scotland's size and nature, focused and fleet of foot. It will increase the efficiency and avoid uh, reduce duplication, allowing Scotland to make the best use of highly specialised skills needed in this area. It will provide more streamlined and consistent decision-making across sectors, bringing certainty for businesses and consumers alike. It will create a more powerful body, uh, better able to act on behalf of Scotland's consumers to ensure that markets are operating efficiently, efficiently. In essence, independence will put the full set of economic growth levers, fiscal and economic, in the hands of those best placed to use them, the people of Scotland. It will enable Scotland's Parliament to build an economy that reflects the unique character, skills and values of Scotland. It would ensure that we align decisions on expenditure with our revenue-raising responsibilities, bringing a step change in accountability. Independence brings the opportunity to develop policies that are dynamic and responsive, policies that resonate with the people of Scotland, matching their preferences and helping to create the type of society that they want to see. This week's UK budget uh, provides a timely illustration also of the opportunities of independence and the contrasting position of our membership of the United Kingdom. Firstly, with independence, we will undoubtedly have much more of an opportunity to put forward an integrated policy agenda that truly reflects conditions in Scotland. As a nation, we will be better able to use our size as a key strength. We can quickly understand emerging issues and work collaboratively to develop solutions. We will have the opportunity to link up our skills programmes, our investment decisions, our tax policies and our regulatory structures in a manner which supports our key sectors, industries and, and firms. That is not the norm of UK budgets and UK policy making. In air passenger duty, for example, Scotland could introduce a system that addresses our particular circumstances and the challenges faced by our airports and passengers. We could boost our connectivity and provide extra help to our tourism industry. The needs of airports in Scotland are not the same as those of Heathrow, so aviation policy and related taxation needs to reflect this. In key sectors such as oil and gas, decisions are taken which go against what is in the interests of the industry in Scotland. For example, the uncertainty caused by the decision to increase the supplementary charge in the 2011 budget negatively impacted upon investment decisions in the North Sea, with levels of investment only now coming back on stream. With the one business tax we do control, business rates, we've taken steps to ensure that Scotland has the most competitive regime in the UK, and we are now seeking to do the same with our new responsibility for property transaction taxes. With corporation tax, we could use it responsibly, not to engage in a counterproductive race to the bottom, but to set a competitive rate to attract new investment to Scotland, to incentivise key industries and to counterbalance the pool of London and the South East. One of the most interesting pieces of work in the debate over Scotland's future has been the contribution from David Skilling, who concluded, amongst other things, that it is the ability to take advantage of our scale to put in place integrated and joined-up policy decision-making, a fully collaborative approach to improve ownership and better policy-making within Scotland. Un under the current arrangements, we control approximately 7% of total taxation in Scotland, this will rise to just 15% with the new Scotland Act. With independence, this would rise to 100% with the full spectrum of economic levers from the tax rate and tax incentives, such as investment allowances, targeted 
to the unique interests and circumstances of the Scottish economy. Secondly, independence will provide us with the opportunity to take the correct economic judgments which are fit and proper for Scotland. As I set out in my letter to the Chancellor prior to the budget, and also in a joint letter signed by the other devolved administrations, I've long argued that a failure to inject growth into the UK economy would ultimately undermine plans to rebalance the public finances. When the Chancellor set out his, his fiscal consolidation programme in June 2010, the OBR forecast growth of 2.8% in 2012. The most recent figures show that in actual fact the UK economy grew by just 0.2% last year. Borrowing is now expected to overshoot initial forecasts by an estimated £200 billion on a like-for-like -like basis. And just last month, the UK finally lost the AAA credit status that the Chancellor has been so determined to protect. The best way to tackle the deficit is through growth and employment creation. But since the recession began, the UK has been the worst performing country in terms of output of any country in the G20, with the exception of Italy. The Scottish Government has taken every step possible to provide a short-term stimulus to capital investment through a variety of initiatives, including switching revenue spending to capital, launching new innovative financing schemes such as the National Housing Trust programme and the upscaling of our non-profit distribution programme. However, under the current constitutional settlement, we are constrained in our ability to take a different path. Despite repeated requests for nearly five years for the UK Government to reverse cuts to capital investment, we still face cuts to our capital budget of almost 26%, cuts that even members of the Coalition Government have finally admitted were a mistake. Thirdly, decisions will be taken on Wednesday that will continue to put through reforms which go against many of the principles of fairness and equity that are held in Scotland. On welfare reform, there's a clear economic argument against what the UK Government are now doing. To take one example, the bedroom tax, they say they want to reduce housing, the Housing Benefit Bill by targeting under-occupation. I will set aside the fact that the rising housing benefit expenditure in Scotland is half that of the rest of the UK. Yet another policy not designed for the Scottish situation. But I cannot set aside the impact on the most vulnerable. Eight out of ten Scottish under-occupiers are disabled. It cannot be right, it is not right, that in the, that in the, most, that in the most vulnerable members of society are disproportionately affected by these changes. But there's a further issue here beyond the moral objection. The estimated impact on the net present value of the bedroom tax alone is to take £110 million out of the economy. That is £110 million after any savings have been accounted for. These reforms make no economic sense. And yet again, we see no coordination with employment policy, no coordination with skills policy, no coordination with efforts to get and keep people into work. It is little wonder that 90% of Scottish MPs voted against this reform. This particular change makes no economic sense and Scotland will have to face the impact, yet without the full powers of independence to do something to tackle the issues. So there are a number of examples, uh, current examples, live challenges that will be addressed by the budget on Wednesday that demonstrate we could take a different course to improve the economic performance and the economic circumstances of Scotland. Um, ladies and gentlemen, what I've uh, aimed to do tonight is to set out to you uh, some of the progress that has been made on the strategic arguments around the construction of the 
um, the process of independence and the substance of independence and related them to some of the live challenges that we face, uh, particularly in a week that includes a budget that will involve further economic choices by the United Kingdom. Uh, as we formulate our response to the Fiscal Commission, um, I can give this audience, give SCDI the assurance that the Government is very much engaged in a process of dialogue and consideration of the perspectives of uh, different strands of Scottish society as to how we should respond to that in the formulation of the proposition that will be put to people as a consequence of the White Paper that will be finalised um, in the autumn of this year. It is a, a, an open and welcome debate and I look forward to conducting that uh, with all sectors of Scottish society and very much with the Scottish Council for Development and Industry. Thank you very much.